We're picking up in Exodus chapter 24 today. Exodus chapter 24. And actually, as you're turning there, I had a I had a question last week on Exodus 22. So you could look at that in 22 verses 9 and 10, where there was a question about how some Bible translations say the judges, and the other one, another one that says God. So I'll read that so you you can recall what we were talking about. This is 22, 9 and 10. For every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing, which one says, this is it, in the case of both parties shall come before the judges, or some translations you see, before God, he whom the judges, or God, condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. So here in this verse, it's, Bible translator person is dealing with the word Elohim. This is a word you have, first time you read it in your Bible is Genesis 1-1. You know, in, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth, which is a word that also gets translated not only as God, the only God, but also as gods, referring to the false gods, and sometimes it gets translated in relation to judges or authorities over people that are either a representative of God or the gods. That's how the word was used in the world during this time. Yeah, yeah. So we have different spelling, different spellings to distinguish them. You know, in this case, they're spelled exactly the same. You know, the the when you hear im, like an i m at the end of a word in Hebrew, that's like the S that makes something plural. And uh, the, you know, the Rephidim, you know, it's a, it's a group of people, you know. Anyways, enough about that. The, the point being, Bible translator person has to, they see that word Elohim, they have to decide, well, you know, what is it referring to? God, gods, judges. And how, how do you determine the meaning of a word? Yeah, context and, and how it's used. So then the, the question comes when you're trying to translate 22.9 for people. Well, what's the, the context? You know, who, who's being addressed? And this context, I think, that, that helps give us a cue is looking back in 21.1. Now, now these are the judgments which you are to set before them. This is Yahweh talking to Moses. You know, Moses was supposed to set this before them because the people were going to be coming to him for counsel. But were they only going to be coming to Moses? Or you had some more counsel, which was the counsel of Jethro to Moses. You can't do this by yourself. You're going to need to delegate these things and to have some other people help you. So he's you see, the context is these are the judgments which you're to set before him, which included, you know, Moses and other elders who were helping him. 
So that being the context, when you're reading you know, verses 9 through 10, and you see that word Elohim, you've got to translate it. You see, the case of both parties, who did they come before? You know, some of the elders, maybe Moses. You know, it's these guys that are passing judgment. But they're also the ones who are the delegated authority of God. So either, either way, you get the right theological concept and why some translators would choose saying before God is because in verse 11, they look at what comes after. It says, then an oath before Yahweh shall be made by the two of them. So that's where some of them say, well, what they're doing, they're coming before Yahweh, so we should translate it as God because of this thing that comes afterwards. So the, the difficulty for the Bible translator is, do I go with the thing that comes before it or that comes after it? And, and how do they, they connect? Yes. Yeah. So what you'll have, uh, I saw this in the the LSB online version that has the cross-references, ESV, NIV. They have a little footnote there. You know, if they put God in the footnote, it says also could be translated the judges. If they put the judges, they have a little footnote that says also could be translated God. So one of the things you see is that the, you know, Bible translators don't, don't hide anything from you. You know, they, they put the other thing in the footnotes so that you could know that and give it some consideration and, and study. So that's what's going on in that verse, which y'all inquired about. All right. Yeah. <laughs> any, any other questions about that or is that resolved? You're at rest. We're good. All right. <laughs> All right. Lucas, welcome. We saved a seat for you right up front. So we're in Exodus chapter 24, and as we approach this, we're having the, the conclusion of this thing called the Book of the Covenant. It has the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments and some cases or examples of how they, they could be applied. And now this, this covenant needs to be ratified. You know, it, it needs to be, it's like there's a contract that's being made and it's time to sign it now. It's like, here's all the details to it. You know, sign saying that you agree to the terms and conditions. Exodus 24. So concerning the law of God, before we get into this chapter, I want you to think about this, this question. Can, can the law transform people? Can the law transform people? Yeah, so we're mostly, we mostly have a unanimous no here. <laughs> Thing, it, the, did the law transform Israel? Uh, did it transform any society ever? Yeah, could, could it? Yeah, could the law transform society? No. What? Transform is a complete inward and outward change. So, I mean, you might get like external obedience. There's no inward transformation happening through the law. It's pointing you to the need for that. Yeah. So what, what do you... 
and that kind of brings up the tension because you recognize, well, when, they, when there are good laws that reform, conform to God's law, it, things are better, but why is that? Is that because the law transforms or is it because of some other reason? I'm going to leave that hanging for just a second. We will come back to it. But what, what do you think is one of the greatest misunderstandings of the law? That it, yeah, that it can, that it transforms. You know, that's another way to put it. You know, that it that it could bring some sort of salvation. You know, that it that it could better a person or that it could better a society somehow. So I think if we can just get in these sort of laws, then it'll it'll make things better. But the laws don't do that. But then you have to answer the question: Well, why is it like when you have good laws about marriage or something like that within a society? Why why does it go better? Well, it goes better not because the law transforms, but because that's how God has made creation to work. It works that way because of creational principles. It's not because somebody has earned a wage. You know, it's not they kept the law, therefore they get to have this thing. It's just that's how it works in creation. That's why it works better because you're doing it right. You know, it's just like, you know, you're you're trying to, to drive a screw, but you're hitting it with a hammer. Well, why does a screwdriver work better than a hammer well it's because that's how things work <laughs> it doesn't it's not like the screw goes in because now you've totally transformed what it is because you're using the right tool so I want you to think about that with Israel where they're they're it's going to look kind of like the law is transformative they're going to misunderstand it that way in this text and it's going to actually end up being a testimony against them in the end. So we're going to have our, our very own Eddie Rowe read, read to us the entirety of Exodus 24 with clarity and enunciation and articulateness. Then said the Moses, come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, and abide with the 70 of the elders of Israel, and you all shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to Yahweh, but they shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of Yahweh and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which Yahweh has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the, for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basin, put it in basin, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do, and we shall be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has cut with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, seventy of the elders, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against Moses and the sons of Israel, and they beheld God, and they ate and drank. Now Yahweh said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain of the mainland, and I will give you the stone tablets of the law, 
and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose as Joshua was ascended, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the others he said, Remain here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of Yahweh dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called for Moses from the midst of the cloud. And the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a consuming fire on the mountain in the eyes of the sons of Israel. Then Moses entered the midst of the cloud, which he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. One of the things we keep coming back to and concerns to the law is that what it does is it, it instructs. You know, the law doesn't save anybody, but it gives them instruction. And what, what instruction does the law give people? What does it teach them about God? Yeah, it teaches that God is holy. What does it instruct about man? That man is sinful or unholy. And what does it instruct about man's need? Because God is, is holy and man is unholy, there's a separation. So what is it that, that man needs? Yeah, reconciliation through a mediator. And you see that the law, just the whole event pictures this because there's that mount with the clouds and the fire and you can't even walk up to it unless you die. But the only person who can go there and come back to you and, and still lie, I mean, the only one who can pass through death and then come back on the other end is pictured in Moses. You know, there, there's only one mediator that's being pictured here in this picture as they're, you know, seeing this whole event unfold. And as Eddie read, you know, Moses comes to the people and he recounts everything from the ten words plus the cases of how they can be applied in certain situations. And it says he wrote down all the words of Yahweh, which is what we call the Bible. You know, the, you're learning about how God gives scripture. It's from God through his prophet. You know, that's how God's word comes into the human realm, through humans that he uses to write it down. This is, you know, in theology, we'd call this the inspiration of scripture. And you see, it's also the, it teaches us about the authority of scripture. This wasn't Moses's authority. This was God's authority that was being communicated through Moses. And in verse 7, it says, he took the book of the covenant and read it. And this sounds like Sunday morning <laughs> for us. You know, so I, the, the preacher takes the Bible and he reads it. Uh, this is a good worship service. It's got a fellowship meal involved and some other things within it. But so there's something called the Book of the Covenant. And, and what that what that was that was written down was it was the Ten Commandments plus those cases of how they're applied. You know, that's a book that was given to them. You know, this is the book of how they were to understand God and themselves and the world that they lived in. 
And how did the Israelites respond to receiving these words? Yeah. Yeah. What? And why? Why do we kind of laugh when we recite what they actually said? <laughs> yeah. You can see. You've just you know what came before that and how they responded in the wilderness. You know what's coming uh, after that as well. And but what what you're seeing is that these people are fickle. Fickle is the word. You see, you know, God's faithfulness contrasted with Israel's fickleness. And they're looking at the law as a, a means of salvation because what they're afraid of is death. They're afraid of, like, like this whole event is scary, and we just want the scariness to go away. So, all right, we'll do it. You know, we'll, we'll be obedient because we see it as a means of salvation. We see it as a way to make the scariness go away, the, uh, a way to make the fear of death go away, or to make the fear of God's wrath coming on us go away. So they're looking at the law as a savior rather than an instructor that they, they need a mediator to be their savior. But what the law was to be to them was for those that God regenerated, it was a way for them to, to show their love to God. Because you remember, the law breaks down to loving God and loving neighbor, whereby they would show their commitment to him. And we don't want to miss that that did actually happen with some people. You know, this is happening with Moses. This is going to happen with others. Uh, otherwise, you don't have, you know, the rest of the story if nobody uh, obeys. You know, you don't have the tabernacle. You don't have the priesthood. You don't have all of those other things. So don't don't just look at Israel as every single one of them is bad all the time, always. But there's people that God actually converts, which gets referred to as you know, the remnant of Israel that is saved. And it became part of Israel's history that they would misuse the law you know, twisting this covenant that God made with them as some sort of works righteousness salvation. You know, Paul talks about this again in Romans 9, where he said, you know, they thought righteousness was through the law, where they thought, you know, we'll, we'll be the people that God wants us to be if we keep the law of Moses. It'll transform us. Or if we keep the law of Moses, you know, in the New Testament, they thought it'll transform society. It'll transform Roman government and it'll free us from political oppression. Do people today still believe those sort of things about the law? And perhaps you, you even see in yourself a, a temptation to have that sort of misunderstanding. You know, if we can just get, if we can enforce God's laws on people, it'll change them. It, it'll change the world if we could do that. And you see, that's not what the... The, the law cannot do what, what Jesus does. You know, it can't take the place of being the Savior who transforms people. O only Jesus can do that. The other thing that was mentioned earlier uh, in concerns to the, the Jews and their misunderstanding of the law is they, they emphasize you know, the external, you know, all of these rituals that they would perform but what was missed was a heart that, that loves God. You know, they, didn't, 
they didn't say we're going to obey Yahweh because we love him. They said, you know, we'll, we'll do that stuff if you'll just turn off the clouds, turn off the fire, stop the things that are intimidating us right now, and, and we'll do this. And so it's focused on all the, you know, things going on out there rather than the, th the things that are in here, right? It's the things that you're afraid of out there in the world and not the, the sin that's going on in your own heart. Now, one of the, the contrasts that you see here with Israel saying, you know, we will do this, we will do this, is back at the end of chapter 23. If you look back at 23, 25, for example, you get this long strand of I will statements. It says, but you shall serve Yahweh your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will remove the sickness from your midst. And you keep going and it says, I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you. I will make all of your enemies turn their backs on you. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they'll drive out these different people. Uh, God had just got through telling them, I will do these things. I, these things that I'm commanding you to do and that I promised to Abraham, I will do them. And then the way that they respond is, we will do it. <laughs> it's like, uh, you guys are missing the point. It's about, you know, God alone doing this and not we will. Uh, the we will action is not how somebody comes near God. It's the I will actions of God coming near to his people. And what the law teaches is that we don't. And that we need the one who said, I will be who I will be. You see when this covenant is ratified, that it's ratified with blood being sprinkled. You know, this was how Israel would sign the covenant. You know, instead of uh, ink on paper, it was, you know, blood on their bodies. And Israel here is, they're making a, a covenant with God. It's, a, it's an agreement. It's a contract. But, you know, why, why are animals killed and blood's thrown on them? Well, what this communicates is that the way that they're signing this covenant is if we break it, that, that happens to us. If we break it, we get slaughtered. If we break it, we die. It's kind of like a death uh, if we break it to death, do us, and we will part. <laughs> it's different than the marriage contract sort of thing like that. But, uh, and you see that there's this concept of obedience and blood sacrifice that's being brought, toge brought together. But this covenant was not a ministry of life. You know, the the law couldn't give life to anybody. This is how it's talked about in 2 Corinthians and Hebrews. So, you know, the law was a ministry of death. It was a ministry that showed you that you're dead and that it kills you because you, you think that you're alive. You remember Paul talks about this in, in Romans 7. You know, he, he thought he was alive apart from the law until the law came and killed him. Well, how did it kill him? It said, you shall not covet says, I'm dead in sin. I got all sorts of covetousness in, in me. So the law came in and it, and it slayed him and it showed him his need 
for a savior. So this law is a it's a ministry of death. You know, instructs somebody that they're dead in sin and they need to be made alive in Christ. And so they made this commitment with the sacrificed animals, the blood being sprinkled, that communicates if they don't obey, they're going to die just like those animals. But this whole event is teaching them they deserve death, but they need a substitutionary death. You know, a death that's not them, but it's this other thing. And that's what was pictured in, there's this animal that's dying, but the, the animal didn't do the sin that I did. You know, the, the animal's a, a picture of the substitute that I need. But the fact that somebody else is slaying the animal shows that I'm not the one who brings about the substitution that I need. Somebody else does that. A mediator does that. And so Moses is showing them that. There's a mediator that comes to be the substitute death and blood in your place. And this is also pictured in, in the, the gospel ministry of the Levitical priest that's being developed here. But instead of trusting God to be their mediator, they see it as, you know, we, we will do this rather than we need this thing to be done for us. We need this substitution to be done for us. We need, we need somebody to die in our place. We need somebody to be our righteous obedience in our place. You'll probably recall from Isaiah 53, which actually begins in Isaiah 52, that when it talks about God's servant, it says that his servant will prosper and one of the things that he'll do when he's uh, marred more than any other man that he will sprinkle many nations so this sprinkle word keeps it gets used a lot in the book of leviticus keeps getting used and building out this theology of this lamb being sacrificed and sprinkling others to bring them into an obedience and commitment to god but the sprinkling of the blood of that servant is going to be a different covenant, which Isaiah is telling them about and celebrating the good news of that, that covenant where it's not your blood that gets shed because you failed to keep the covenant, but another's blood who is shed to sprinkle many nations. And in talking about that servant who is the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, he, he does what Israel couldn't and that he keeps the law as their substitute. But he also, he also does what they were supposed to do, which was to extend the blessing that was promised to Abraham to the nations. They didn't do that. So he ends up doing everything that they were supposed to do and being everything that they were supposed to be in their place as their substitute. When we talk about this sort of salvation, some of the $50 words that we use are monergism and synergism. Monergism is it's the energy of one by which men are saved. Synergism, it's the, the energy of working with another by which men are saved. Which one do you think describes biblical Christianity? You know, monergism, the working of one, 
or synergism to working with somebody else for salvation. Yeah, monergism.com is a website where you'll find a lot of teaching on this very sort of thing. And this really is the, the divide between true religion and false religion. You know, at the foundation, do you think it's the work of God alone by which men are saved? Or do you think it's somehow you work with him? This concept of blood being sprinkled and obedience to Christ is picked up in 1 Peter. If you want to turn over there and just look at 1 Peter 1, 2. And so, somebody read the first two verses of 1 Peter for us. Now, you see here, obedience and sprinkling of blood gets brought up again. It, at this point in the Bible, it hasn't been talked about for a really long time. And Peter's making a connection, assuming that you understand Exodus 24 and everything that happened from there up to 1 Peter 1 concerning uh, sprinkling. But I want you to see that in this development, you remember we had talked about this that, that question, you know, does the law transform? You know, another way you can put that, does the, does the law sanctify anybody? And scripture is emphatic. It doesn't. That was the great Galatian heresy. Was that, you know, you guys are Christians, but the next step to being a super Christian is the law of Moses. You know, that's what sanctifies you and makes you a next level sort of Christian. But the law doesn't sanctify. It says, this has happened by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. You know, it wasn't the sanctifying work of the law, but the sanctifying work of the Spirit that led to the obedience of Jesus Christ. It's like, well, where does that obedience come? Well, it comes from Jesus Christ. Not only his obedience in your place, the substitute obedience, but now he has given you the grace, which is the power to obey him. And it says, and the sprinkling of his blood. So, that's kind of a curious phrase if you don't know Exodus 24. It's like, what is this? The obedience of Jesus and the sprinkling of his blood have to do. Well, in Exodus 24, what was the point of the sprinkling of the blood? In Exodus 24, that was how the you know, the covenant was ratified. This is how the, the commitment was expressed. But is but what's different here is it's it's not 
the sprinkling of some animal's blood and it's the declaration of the judgment that you deserve. But instead it's the sprinkling of the Lamb of God's blood and the salvation that you didn't deserve. So you see here the what Peter's communicating and going back to that, he's, in a way he's saying, we have a better covenant. You know, it, he's saying something about you know, the first covenant that was made and then making a tie into the next covenant and saying, yeah, the Spirit has set you apart to obedience to Jesus Christ and to commitment to that covenant, but it was by the shedding of his blood that your blood didn't have to be shed, and now you're free to live for him, which is what Peter goes on to write about. So you're, you're free from sin. You're free from your past. You don't have to go back to your old former way of living and ignorance and the things that you inherited from your forefathers and how they lived, but you're, you're free to be holy now and to belong to God and to obey him and follow him. The new covenant is better because, as we talked about from Isaiah 52, it's, it's not just blood being sprinkled on people showing that they deserve judgment, but it's the sprinkling of many nations, just like Israel was to be a blessing to the nations and to extend God's blessing. Where they didn't do that, Christ did that in their place, and we have inherited that blessing as you know, uh, the nations to which that blessing has gone out. The new covenant is better because it not, Jesus meets the death requirement, and he also meets the righteous requirement of the law in our place. But you hear this in, in Romans 8. I'll just read the first four verses for you in Romans 8. Says, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he talks about another law here. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. You see that? So the law couldn't do it. God did it. You know, that's all those, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this statements that were given to them. It says, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. You know, that's a substitute. It says, and as an offering for sin, that's sacrifice, he condemned sin in the flesh. You know, he, he propitiated or satisfied the wrath and justice of God that should have fallen on those that he was sent to redeem. It says, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. He doesn't say, well, God just forgives it and he never expected anybody to keep the law. You know, there wasn't actually a requirement of righteousness. Because No, there was a, a righteous requirement within the law. Jesus also did that. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So you see those same sort of concepts even there within Romans 8. I need to get my battery back in my watch so I can look at my watch here. So, so that when y'all see me do that, then... <laughs> I didn't put the clock over there on that wall or something. <laughs> this 
covenant ratification was followed by fellowship meal. Like I said, this is a good worship service. You know, the Bible's read, there's fellowship meal. It's a good day. <laughs> Everybody, and the saints nodded in agreement. Okay. There was something that these men, they, they gather at, at table with Moses and said, well, they, they saw God, but they didn't. You, you see, there's not really anything that's described about him, but what's described is it, the floor beneath him. So you see, like they're, they're at table and they can see something of God's glory, but they're at a distance. They're not at the same table at this point. And there was this recognition, like we can't come near to him, but we can be brought there somehow. But it's like, who brought us to this point? Moses. But you want to recognize here in verse 10, it says they saw the God of Israel. It wasn't just you know, the God of heaven that's just above and beyond, but he's of Israel. He has a, a connection to humanity. He's the with God. He's relational and that he's of Israel, you know, which, which Israel means, you know, God fights for you. So, so he, he's the God of God fights for you. He, he comes to you to bring you to himself. He's not just transcendent. He's also relational. But they also saw in this fellowship meal, you know, only, only Moses could go up from the table to God and come back to them. And this whole event is mysterious. And it, it makes you ask a lot of questions. Like, well, what did they see? It doesn't tell you. <laughs> it was a, but we want to see that. We want to know what was going on there. Well, Scripture picks up on that in John 1.18, and John, John really likes the book of Exodus. He uses it very much to write his own gospel, and he says no one has seen God at any time, not even in Exodus 24. So, but we want to know what happened there, and we want to, we want, we want to, to see him. We want to know what, he, we want some explanation. He says the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Like, well, what does he look like? Jesus. Well, explain God to us. Jesus. Now, Jesus is God. This is what he's like. This is, this is what he looks like. This is his character. Jesus is the explanation of God because he is God. You'll remember he ratified a covenant by blood, but it wasn't the blood of other animals uh, on men, it was the blood of his own body. This is Matthew twenty six twenty eight. When he ratified the new covenant, he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You need to think about these Jewish guys sitting around the table, the sort of things that they're thinking of. They're like, we've heard of a thing like this, but this is better. <laughs> But this is different because they're, they're celebrating the Passover, you know, in the moment. And they're thinking about, well, yeah, we get this. We've been doing this for a long time, you know, the, the, the blood of the, the lamb. But now Jesus is saying, it's my blood. And so that's what the lamb thing was all about. Because no, no sacrifice of any animal ever brought about the forgiveness of anybody's sins. But Jesus is saying, I'm the one who does that. I'm the thing that was pictured 
in all of that. I'm the good news that you heard about in the first covenant. I'm the thing that you've always needed. You remember in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, he says in in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So you see, we have this same sort of celebration and reminder of the new covenant that it was, you know, Jesus' death. You know, when we're talking about his blood, we're talking about his death. It's not like you have to find like droplets of his blood somewhere to, to be saved or to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but it's remembrance of his death and what he did for the forgiveness of your sins. And listen listen how the the author of Hebrews talks about these things. This is from Hebrews 13, 20. It says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus. You know, he's seeing the fulfillment of these things which the first covenant pointed out we needed. They're fulfilled in Jesus. You know, he's the mediator who can, you know, get up from the table and bring people to God so that you're at the same table rather than a different one at a distance. He's the one who brings you know, God's people into that fellowship meal or the marriage supper of the Lamb. Back in Exodus 24, you see, it was only Moses who could come up to the mountain and remain and come back down and bring people back up. But everybody else just had to remain where they were. And there's nothing about Mount Sinai and this event where somebody should think, this is how we come near to God. It's through this mountain. It's like, no, you can't get nearer to God by going. If you you try to go through the the law instruction mountain, uh, you will die. It's covered with the cloud of the glory of God who is a consuming fire. To try to come to him that way would mean certain death. Only God's mediator can come out alive on that thing. This was a reminder of the the angel army and the, the fire that stood outside of Eden. You know, they're seeing, you know, Adam couldn't walk back into Eden. Israelites can't ascend the Mount of God. You know, their, their only hope is that somebody could pass through that, that kind of death and then come out alive on the other end and then bring them up to God. And you see that that's how salvation works and that's what's being taught to them. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He passes through the death that they deserve to bring them to the God that they couldn't come to because of the holiness separation. You know, they would have to be made holy by a mediator to be able to be brought to the God which to whom they could not bring themselves. You know, that had to be done for them. And Moses comes down with these stone tablets. We find out later in Exodus 31, there's two of them which you probably already guessed when you just read it, but at this point it doesn't say that there's two. We find that out later. And a lot of times we talk about this as like, like it's two tablets. Like one of them has, here's the, the love, love God side of it, and then here's the, 
love your neighbor side of it. To the best of my understanding, what I've learned about this is that you know during this time, as an ancient custom, when there was some sort of covenant that was made between some ruler and their people, there are always two copies that, that were made. And you know that, that ruler would keep his copy and he would give you the receipts. So he's like, I got this on record to know that I gave this to you guys. And you guys have your copy, which is the receipt to know that you're being held to that. So it's not like I just have it and you say, well, we forgot about it. We didn't have our, our own copy of it. But in, in this case, God, God's giving them both copies. He's given them the, the original and the duplicate, which what's going to, to happen with one of them is that it gets put in the Ark of the Covenant, which is going to be you know, a testimony to future generations. But not everybody can just go in there. <laughs> Only the high priest gets to go that far one time a year. So it's like, well, how can we even know what it says? You got another copy. So it's that God's not like the other rulers where, where the, you know, the ruler keeps his one copy, but he gives us both. And, but the, the receipt we get to pass on to future generations in the ark so that the testimony remains. And they always have their own readable copy of the thing as well. These are also referred to as the tablets of testimony in Exodus 31. It's the testimony of who God is and who they aren't. Uh, one of the things we want to hear, you know, I keep talking about how the law is, its purpose is instruction. You see with these stone tablets here that are brought down. It says that he, he came with the law. This is in verse 12. It says, I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment. It says, well, what's the purpose? Which I have written for their instruction, right? The word salvation is not there, but the word instruction is there. So that's the purpose of the law. It's, it's an instructor. It's a tutor. It's a guide. So what does the law do? It instructs. Does it save? No. Does it bring somebody near to God? No. Does it transform people? No. Does it transform society? No. That's what Jesus does. He saves. He brings near to God. He transforms people and will create his society on earth with his will being done as it is done in heaven. And within this, there's the appearance of the glory of Yahweh, which is made known, which is setting up for the tabernacle that's going to come. You know, a, a huge part of the book of Exodus is about the tabernacle. We're going to get to that. And what's, what's the point of the, the tabernacle? What does it show these people? Does the tabernacle teach him that God is only the distant God of cloud and fire that can't be approached? Yeah, exactly. It's like, this is the God who comes near to you, that, that you can be with him, but, but the way that you come back into that tabernacle sort of relationship like there was in Eden is all of this stuff that happens on the outside with the priest, the sacrifice, the, these sort of things. That's why I refer to 
you know, the Levitical priest is having a gospel ministry. Like this is this is the good news of how you come into relationship with God, but it's not by what you do, but it's by something that, that he's going to do for you. This is what he's going to do. It's going to be like this. You know, here's an illustration of you know, how these sort of things work so that you'll be instructed in the good news and repent and believe. So how is it that you get at, you know, the, the same table as God rather than just a table where you can see him at a distance? Well, that's what the tabernacle would instruct the people in that, you know, God alone can bring sinful men into his holy presence by coming down and bringing them up. Now, at the end of this chapter, it says mountain, or Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, the Bible has its own cross-reference system. And it's built into these, it's these sort of phrases, 40 days and 40 nights. So now this has been a phrase that has been used before. But what does it connect to? When was a, when was a time of another 40 days and 40 nights? Yeah, global flood, the ark, you know, which is a reminder of God's judgment, which there's something being communicated about that here. Like you deserve God's judgment. You need God's blessing. Same truth is being conveyed here. 40 days, 40 nights. Here, make a connection. We deserve judgment. We need God's blessing. When's the next time the 40 days and 40 nights comes up again, and it's not in the New Testament. <laughs> Elijah, yeah, this is First Kings chapter 19. This is why we send people to Bible school. Right. <laughs> It was a time when uh, Elijah's being persecuted by the government under Jezebel. And he, he's just thinking, man, I'm the only guy that's left. You know, this lady's out to kill me. This is going to be the end of me. But then he goes up on the same mount for 40 days and 40 nights. But what's it a, what's it a reminder of? God's judgment and the need for blessing. But here it's a reminder of God's going to bring retribution on Jezebel just like he did to Pharaoh. So, and you need God's blessing and, and he's going to bring it. So it's like, you can trust God for his judgment and for blessing. You don't, he's comforting his prophet to not be despairing. You know, it's going to happen someday, which then ties into the next use of 40 days, 40 nights, which is in the New Testament. Jesus in the wilderness. So now it's like, well, who's the one who deals with the judgment problem and brings the salvation? You know, who's the one who brings, you know, destruction to, you know, the old master and his weapon death and deliverance to a new master? It's the God-man mediator. Here he is. And, you know, it's interesting, these guys' name, these guys' names, you know, Noah, Noah's name was rest. You know, we need rest. Moses' name is drawn out. You know, Moses was drawn out to God's rest. Yeah, but Elijah was saying, well, how's this going to work when you know, government persecution is just so powerful? Like it looks like 
this is not going to turn out well. Well, Elijah's name means Yahweh is God. Nobody else is God. Jezebel isn't God. And then Jesus comes, whose name means Yahweh saves. So it goes from rest to drawn out to Yahweh as God to Yahweh saves. You know, just those four events of 40 days and 40 nights ties together a, a theology of salvation for us. Jesus overcomes the temptation and lives the righteousness which we couldn't. He was everything Israel was supposed to be and needed. And he's everything that, that we need, and he's the only hope for humanity. He's the death and righteousness substitute. And he saves by dying the death that we deserve and also being the righteousness that we need. So what we're going to do here in closing, we're going to read in Hebrews 9, 11 through 28. And I think after this lesson, this is going to, Maybe hit your ear a little bit different. Because you'll hear about blood and sprinkling and a, a mediator and the better covenant, the new covenant. <coughs> Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the trespass that we were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment has been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry he sprinkled without the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things were cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copy of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but 
Now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So you see here there's a comparison where you know, Christ is better than Moses. New covenant's better than the first covenant. You know, the law couldn't transform, but Jesus Christ does that by the sprinkling of his blood being the mediator of a new covenant. Any questions as we end there? All right, I'll close this in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the covenant that was ratified in your blood, that was ratified by your death to save us from death and to give us life. We thank you for that covenant of life. We thank you for being the way, the truth, and the life, that you alone are the only way to God, the only way to truth, the teacher of truth, and the only giver of eternal life. We praise you for these realities and thank you for the amazement of your word and your work. And we pray that our lives would be transformed with a greater gratitude of seeing your work on our behalf as we continue to study your word and we eagerly await your second coming when you make all things right and sin and death are no more. Amen.